We've seen enormous pressure on the program because of the recession-driven um, enrollment. And as um, states begin to see the economy recover, that those pressures on enrollment um, will decrease. Silhouette seasons and faraway reasons are all I have now. Borders can't keep me if Rio will have me to dance and to drown. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe Well, Today is Friday, October 1st, and that was Robin Rudowitz from the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured you heard at the top of the show. Today on the podcast, four former college buddies who trick an entire nation of 150 million people into saving their own economy. But first, as always, the Planet Money indicator from our very own J. Julius Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, $66 billion dollars. That's how much the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, to you and me, will ultimately cost the government, according to a recent estimate from the Congressional Budget Office. And then we heard at a White House press briefing this week that the ultimate cost could actually be even lower than that. And it's coming up now. It's today's indicator because TARP officially ends on Sunday. And TARP, again, was the program that authorized the government to give up to $700 billion out. It actually gave out about half of that, and a lot of that money has already been paid back. And the CBO is saying that still more will be paid back in the future, but at least according to the recent CBO estimate, when all is said and done, the government will still be short about $66 billion. In the end, though, that that estimate, these estimates we're hearing, they mean that TARP is actually likely to be a lot cheaper for taxpayers than people thought even just a few months ago. You know, this spring, the CBO had an estimate that TARP would cost more than $100 billion. And of course, back in the heat of the crisis, it was totally unclear how much of TARP would ever be paid back. So I have never understood that. Like $66 billion or $50 billion is not cheap. But why why is TARP working out better than people expected? Well, despite the fact that the economy still feels really bad, Unemployment is high. The housing market is a mess. A lot of the corporate world is actually doing okay. The big banks that got a lot of the TARP money have paid it back with interest. And just this week, AIG, which also got a big bowl of TARP, announced a plan that that actually sounds like uh, there's a good chance the government will get paid back on, on its AIG bailout. And the irony here is that even though TARP is doing better than expected and is going to return more money to the government than anybody expected, people still basically hate the TARP because the big companies that TARP bailed out are doing well, and that's enabling them to pay back TARP. But a lot of people are still out of work. A lot of people are underwater on their mortgages. And people are just angry in general about the bailouts, and TARP is part of that. Alex, just for full disclosure, I should point out to our listeners here that you're wearing your Where's My Bailout visor today. <laughs> today and every day, Jacob. And and I should also point out what's what's probably obvious, which is the end of TARP does not mean the end of the bailouts. There are companies, obviously, that still haven't paid their TARP money back. That's not going to happen all of a sudden. And then there are all these other bailouts. One big one is the bailout of Fannie and Freddie, which was not part of TARP and which has already cost more than $100 billion and is still totally unresolved. All right. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. All right. So on to the show, Alex. You know, when people talk about uh, the country of the future, people often talk about China. Sometimes they'll mention India. I'm here to announce today I have a dark horse candidate, Brazil. And I I think this because I was recently in Brazil, and it is crazy. And if you look at the numbers, it's clear why. Brazil's economy has been growing very quickly. It is the second largest economy in the Western Hemisphere. And this year, it's projected to grow 7% a year. That's compared to the U.S., which we'll be lucky if we can pull off 3%. 
there aren't that many countries that are managing to do what Brazil's managing to do. Yeah, Brazilian President Lula da Silva likes to say that the recession was nothing but a small tide on Brazil's beautiful beaches. <laughs> and and you really get the sense being there talking to Brazilians that they they're very aware that the US is not really aware of them, is not really aware of Brazil. And and when people say that to you, it's it's not like an insecurity thing like you guys Like why isn't the US more aware no, of no, us? No, no, it's like it's sort of like a pitying thing. It's like poor you don't realize how important we have become. Like we are the future and you don't even know it. Yeah. I'm- too bad for you. So how did this country that used to have such a messed up economy become one of the fastest growing future superpowers on the globe? That is the subject of today's program. And Hannah, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to hand over the reins of the show entirely to you. You're going to tell this fascinating story. And it's especially fascinating when you consider just how bad the Brazilian economy was doing as recently as 15 years ago. So Hannah, take it away. Okay. So let's start with where Brazil is today. We're going to start in a mall. I was in this mall in Sao Paulo, and some guy with a bright red T-shirt walks up to me and shoves paperwork into my hands and offers me a credit card. And he really wanted me to have that card, despite the fact that I kept repeating my only Portuguese words. Now, obrigado. No, thank you. You might not think that sounds like a big deal, but for Brazil, the credit card is a brand new concept. In fact, the way everyone spends their money in this mall is new. José Núñez works at Sports City. So a soccer ball in two installments. Any, any shoes, the average is six installments. So a backpack, six installments. Todos os produtos. All products. Everything? Yeah. Todos. As I said that everything, I was holding up a pair of sunglasses off of José's display. Yes, he told me, six installments. Next door to Sports City, you can buy a Spider-Man blanket in three installments. Next door to that, a cruise to some Brazilian islands in ten interest-free installments. Over in a hair salon, Darcy Berto is sitting, waiting for her turn with the hairdresser. And while she's waiting, she spent 10 minutes describing to me the incredible innovation of dollar stores. She kept pointing to the overflowing plastic bags crowding around her ankles, saying, can you believe it? Um real deu para comprar seis cabides. Na época da gente não tinha. Os pais da gente tinha que fazer de madeira. So uh, nowadays you can buy six hangers, for instance, for one real. Now compared to my parents' time, they had to make the hangers. Ganha pouco, mas a gente tem mais valor. You you can earn uh, very little, but uh, the the money has more value nowadays. Okay, so to understand why these people in this mall are describing three things that we take for granted in the U.S., credit cards, installment plans, and dollar stores, as basically as miracles, it all has to do with the last sentence that Darcy said. You you can earn uh, very little, but uh, the, the money has more value nowadays. To say that money in Brazil has more value nowadays than it used to is like saying China is growing a smidge. Fifteen years ago, money basically had no value in Brazil. The inflation rate in Brazil in 1990 was about 80 percent a month. So imagine just going to the store like one day eggs will cost a dollar in the store. And then tomorrow they would be a dollar and two cents. And the next day they'd be a dollar and four cents. By the end of the month, they would have almost doubled. And by the end of the year, if inflation continues, 
eggs would be $1,000. So that was what things were like in Brazil in the 1980s and the early 90s. And it is what they would still be like right now today if it were not for some unlikely heroes. The most unlikely group of national heroes you can imagine, four former drinking buddies from grad school. With a crazy plan, who were suddenly put in charge of the country's biggest economic crisis ever. But before we meet them and hear their story, let's paint a picture of the problem that they set out to solve. So remember, prices were going up every day in the 80s and early 90s. And if you think about what that actually means in the supermarket, they had to change prices every day. Caetano Ferrari, this flirtatious 75-year-old in Sao Paulo that I met, remembers that that was someone's job, to walk the aisles and change the prices. There's a guy who changed the sticker. Blah, 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 blah. Huh? He'll pass the guy <laughs> and he'll buy things. Wait, you would walk by the guy? You would, like, get in front of him? You run. In front of him? In front of the guy and buy things like that. So that you could get to the goods before he changed the price. Yes, like that. In the whole day, this this machine doing this. This is Maria Leopoldina Bierenbeck, someone with a very Brazilian long name who spent a lot of time in supermarkets during high inflation. Maria was a housewife with four kids, and she wasn't really the running type. She'd politely ask the sticker man to stop and wait. If he didn't, she had another trick. She'd pull off his new sticker, walk up to the register, and pay the old price. But then they discovered the maquininha, the small machine. And that you couldn't do anything because it printed the price. That, that wasn't easy to take off. Inflation was a pain for people who shopped in stores as well as for people who ran those stores. Because the problem is you can only possibly know that inflation was 80% a month in retrospect. At the time it's actually happening, you have no idea. This is one of the pernicious effects of sustained high inflation. You assume, because prices were going up in the past, that they're going to continue going up in the future. But you don't really know how much. How much do you tell the sticker man to raise prices by? So every business in Brazil had to develop different strategies. So some people just set a number for what prices will be. They just said prices will go up 2% every day. Other store owners would go and like just peek at the store down the road and see what their prices were and copy them. And others would look at the exchange rate with the dollar. So people like Isaac Guerkman, he ran a textile factory in a row of textile businesses. And his method was looking at the exchange rate with the dollar combined with good old-fashioned collusion. Every morning, Isaac would get together with the other textile guys. In Brazil, it's very common that you start your day having a glass of coffee, and we start talking the weekend and how our, our football team has, uh, has done. And then someone uh, probably would say, how much you're going to start, are you going to charge, what is the dollar exchange rate? And somebody else would say, uh, was nine, now it's $10, and I have to increase my prices 10%. And, you know, it's not an exactly science. Brazil's problems with inflation all started in the 1950s. The government wanted to build a new capital in Brasilia, and they wanted nice buildings, fancy architects, and didn't have the savings to pull it off. So it created the money to do it. 
Now, this is an option countries are often tempted to take. They can print money to pay for things they can't afford. The problem, of course, is inflation. So if there's $100 in the economy and you create 100 more, now every dollar is worth half as much. That's inflation. And in Brazil, inflation continued for the next five decades. Year after year, Brazilian money was worth less and less. And this causes all sorts of problems, not just with the sticker man. You know, say you get a $1,000 bonus and you put that money in your drawer. A year later, it's worth half as much. So the minute you get paid, the clock is ticking on your money. I talked to one man who told me he used to have nightmares about his money sitting still on his dresser, just losing value. A beer manufacturer told me he stopped making beer because making beer just takes too long. You buy all the grains and hops, and by the time it was brewed, everything was worth so much less. So by the 1980s, inflation was the number one political issue, and so began the plans to fix it. Now, it turns out the best person to talk to about this is Maria Leopoldina Birenbeck, the housewife who peeled off the stickers in the supermarket. Because Maria can take you through a detailed history of each president's failed plan to stop inflation. But you have to ask Maria each question twice, because the first time she always answers like this. I don't know, because I never had to do anything. I was just a plain housewife mother. And then Maria will proceed to be the most knowledgeable person you will speak to on any topic. Okay, so first up, President Sarney in 1985. And President Sarney's solution to inflation was simple. Businesses are raising prices. Make that illegal. There was a price freeze. Now, there were many problems with that idea, beginning with the fact that no one in the country believed it would actually solve inflation. They figured there would be a time, probably in the near future, where the price freeze would go away. And you know what happened? People hid the merchandise. <laughs> and you, you couldn't buy anything because they wanted the, the prices to, to grow up because the situation was uh, a fantasy. It was not real. You, you couldn't find uh, meat at the butchers. Because they, weren't, they just weren't buying meat to sell? Why couldn't you buy They meat? hid the cattle. Really? Yes. You can do that here. It's a very large country, you know. <laughs> so they hid the cattle waiting for the price freeze to go away. The main problem with this plan, of course, is you can't just freeze prices and not deal with the underlying problem, the fact that the government is still creating money, which causes inflation. So that was the next guy's idea. President Collor in 1990, he thought, okay, I'll just stop creating so much money. Inflation will eventually go down. Now, here is the problem with that. It has to do with the country's banks. If you were in the small minority of Brazilians who had enough money to have a bank account, it felt like a really great deal. Because in order to get your money, banks had to pay you an interest rate that was higher than the rate of inflation. So in the U.S., you're lucky if you get 2% interest on your bank account. But in Brazil in 1990, people could get 2,000% or more. Money was growing in banks, which helped fuel inflation, which led President Collor to believe bank accounts were part of the problem. And here's where he went really, really wrong. He decided to freeze bank accounts, 80% of private assets, 80% of the money you have in your bank account, you can't take out. Now, 
Maria is telling me this, and my translator, Flavio Ferreira, was sitting in on our conversation, and he could no longer keep quiet. He remembers when the Minister of Finance made that announcement. And I remember the day when she was on TV explaining that they were going to confiscate everybody's money. So next days, banks would not uh, work. I remember the face of that woman. She had studied in the best schools, and she had been a, a professor at USP, and she was explaining to the nation, as an economist, why we need this to, to, to end inflation. We need the country to be, you know, together with us. But I remember I looked at her and said, God, a government cannot do that. I mean, when, when a government does that, you lose, you lose people's respect. Oh, it was terrible, wasn't it? It was terrible. So many people uh, committed suicide, you know. When you mess with people's money, it does not go well. The economy went off a cliff. President Kohler was impeached. There was a new president, a new finance minister, and inflation went back up again. The Brazilian economy was at a low point, and it looked like there was nothing to be done to fix it. So... Enter our heroes, those four economists we talked about at the beginning, who basically entered the picture now because that new finance minister knew nothing about economics. And so, in March of 1993, he called one of our heroes, Edmar Basha. Oh, I was, I was, I was in, in uh, my office at that university here, uh, the Catholic University. And I got a call soon after I had finished uh, teaching a class, you know. And he said, uh, well, uh, i just been named the finance minister. You know that I don't know any economics, so uh, please uh, come to meet me in Brasilia tomorrow. We need you. Well, I was terrified. <laughs> Basha had been waiting three decades for this call, ever since he and his three friends had taught graduate school together at the prestigious Catholic University in Rio. Four friends who had been studying Brazilian inflation for decades. Four buddies at the campus bar complaining to each other about how this government didn't know what it was doing and that government didn't know what it was doing. Four buddies who were now being asked by the government to come and fix things their way. The plan they'd spent years on. And so, of course, their first answer, no, we don't want to. Here's another one of the four, Andre Lara. This is a, a this is a process. It's something that requires many years. It's not something that we can do. It's not a magic. It's not a trick that we do overnight. When I asked Lara, wasn't it exciting though? He looked he looked kind of confused for a moment, and then scornful. People, he told me, should be interested in ideas, not feelings. They thought we had a trick. There is no trick. There is only long, hard, complex, multi-step macroeconomic plans modeled specifically for the Brazilian context. Basha is the more casual of this pair. Yeah, he tells me, we had a trick, but I was busy and I didn't really want to move to Brasilia. The government pressed on. Lara and Basha were taken to dinner with members of parliament who told them how much the country really needed them. They got calls at home. Senators told them, you will have free reign, whatever you think is best. Basha was invited to meet the president. And then I asked him an autograph for my kids. And then he wrote a, a note, a note for it, my address to my two kids and saying, please tell your father to work fast for the benefit of the country. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he wrote in the autograph? Yes, yes, I still have that note. <laughs> so there was a lot of pressure. Oh, yes, 
yes, yes. Now, I should say the four economists from the Catholic University were not reluctant because they doubted their plan. Dr. Lara does not strike you as someone who doubts anything that emerges from his mind. Yes, I was pretty pretty sure that it was going to work. There was a lot of people that, that didn't understand it, even among professional economists that didn't like the idea and thought it would lead us to hyperinflation. But uh, from the beginning, I was sure. There were a lot of people who weren't so sure the plan would work. The IMF, for one, nearly every citizen of the country of Brazil, and Lara's direct collaborator on that plan, Basha. You know, it's one thing to do it uh, at your office. It is the other thing to put the thing together, right? (laughs) It had never, never been put in practice anywhere this way. Basha was eventually won over by the autograph and the finance minister's appeals. And Lara was convinced by a parliamentary dinner where the politicians assured him they'd take whatever difficult measures were needed to keep his idea pure. So here was the idea. Basically, the four economists said, yes, you have to hit the underlying causes of inflation. You have to stop creating money. But you also have to stabilize people's faith in money itself. And this is where their plan was different. People were part of the problem, they thought. Their perceptions. People had to be tricked into thinking money had value when all signs told them that was absolutely not true. So Basha says they wrote a plan for a new currency, one that was stable, dependable, trustworthy. The only catch was this currency would not be real. It would not be printed. There would never be coins. It was fake. They called it a virtual currency. Uh, we call the unit of real value, URV, yes. Yeah, it was a virtue. It didn't exist, in fact. People would still have and use cruceros, the local currency, but everything would be listed in URVs. Your wages would be listed in URVs, taxes were listed in URVs, and all prices in the stores were listed in URVs. And URVs would be held stable. And so, for example, when you went to the store and bought some milk... How much does it cost? Say, well, now we have, it costs X, let's say, one URV. Well, how much is that? Because I cannot pay without URV. Say, well, I have this little table here, and today's value of URV in cruzeros is seven cruzeros per URV. So it costs one URV, seven cruzeros. You pay seven cruzeros. You go next week, well, it's still one URV. But then you, you say, well, how, many, how, many, how many cruzeros? You look, well, well, 14. Every night, the central bank would put out a memo with the official inflation rate of the day. And it would get printed in the newspaper the next morning. So the store clerk could look it up. Monday, one URV is equal to seven cruceros. Tuesday, 12 cruceros. Wednesday, 14. Milk or whatever it was you were buying would stay the same in URVs. And the idea was you would start thinking in the fake currency, in URVs, because just last week you got paid 1,000 URVs, milk costs one URV. Next month you get 1,000 URVs again, and milk would still be one URV. The amount of cruceros, what you actually handed to the clerk, would change, but the price in URVs would not. That was the plan which Basha presented to the senator from Sao Paulo. And then when I explained to him the plan, you know, he, after a while, you know, he said, well, with some anguish in his voice, said, well, Basha, 
if this is the only way that uh, you tell me that it can be done, then we'll follow you to the precipice. And so the four economists went about explaining to the country that everyone now should talk in a virtual currency. We didn't understand what it was. Uh, we asked, uh, how much is that? Oh, so many urfs. I, I used to say it was a fantasy because, <laughs> because it, it was a, uh, not real. Still, people used it without being forced to. One store would be selling milk for one URV, and eventually all the stores would be. So people would know that's an appropriate price for milk, which I can tell because I got paid 1,000 URVs. And then when we are satisfied that prices were relatively in good synchrony, we declare, well, from this day, the virtual currency becomes a real currency. The Cruzeiro Real is going to disappear. And everyone is going to receive from now on its wages and pay all for all the prices in the new currency, which is the real, which is equal to one URV and, 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 and also equals to one dollar. And that's, that, that is the trick. It wasn't the only trick, obviously. While they put URVs in place, the group of economists made the government balance its budget and slow down on money creation. And then... One day, July 1st, 1994, the central bank deployed truckloads of new cash in this new currency, the real, to banks in the cities, to provinces, and waited on the ready for the four economists to say, go. All that fake money you've been using, it's now real. And I remember, you know, the day, the day that we launched in the real, I have this journalist who had become a friend of mine, and then she came to me and said, the professor... Do you swear that inflation is going to end tomorrow? <laughs> I said, yes, I swear that's going to end tomorrow. <laughs> we were in awe. Everybody was very happy. <laughs> now, I should say, not everyone was happy. Brazil had had 50 years of high inflation. So remember that guy with the textile factory who had coffee every morning to figure out what to charge that day, Isaac Guerkman? He was one of the wealthier Brazilians who had money in the bank. And now that inflation was over, he wasn't earning all that interest. I have to admit that I bankrupt in this change and in, in, in the currency change. What happened? Well, uh, suddenly the money started to have value and you have to make money from your efficiency and not from your money investment. You had to go back and start producing and competing and having efficiency. I was in the market for more than 20 years when I had to close my factory. Isaac Guerkman's problems aside, our four heroes literally turned Brazil's economy in the opposite direction with their plan. Brazil was finally able to grow in the way it always should have been all along. The country was able to grow true competitive industries, huge players in sugar and oil and iron ore. And Cardozo, the finance minister who hired our four heroes after admitting he knew nothing about economics, he was elected president twice because of this plan. And despite the fact that people don't know the four economists by name, they really are seen in the country as heroes. Almost everyone I talked to about what happened in 1994 when they got the real described the moment as magic, which you'd think these guys would like. But Lara does not appreciate decades of research being referred to as magic. 
There's nothing magical in UAV. <laughs> it's very technical and very... But basically, it was just reestablish the idea of a, of a unit of account that gives you uh, the sense of value, a relative value. Basha doesn't mind it so much. Actually, he kind of likes it. It's very fun, you know, because people today, you know, that uh, you, you go around and uh, people think that this is so natural to live in a country without inflation. <laughs> it is so natural now that when you walk into a store in Brazil, instead of a sticker man running up and down the aisles raising prices, you can walk out of that store with your products in hand and not finish paying for them until 12 months later. In just 20 years, Brazilians have gone from an absolute faith that their currency has no value to an absolute faith that its value will never change. And as that's happened, they've developed a solid and growing belief that Brazil is the next global power. All right, Hannah, thank you so much for hosting the entire podcast yourself today. You can leave us a comment about the show on our blog, npr.org slash money. And Jacob has this great post up there today, which you should look at. It basically breaks down where an individual's tax dollars end up. It's like a taxpayer receipt. So it's for someone earning $34,000. They spent $5,400 on taxes. And you can see the list, you know, $69 went to national parks, $28 to NASA, $2.23 to Amtrak which explains why the food is so bad. And way up at the very top of that list, $1,040.70 to Social Security. That is all at npr.org slash money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening.